much more authoritative when the mic comes on, so that's good. All right, well, let's uh, prepare our hearts before we open God's Word together. So I'll give you just a few moments to pray silently, ask God to remove any distractions, to give you ears to hear His voice through His Word. Pray for me as well. And I'll give you just a few moments and I'll open this up in prayer. Father, our, our hearts and our souls do long to know you, and even as the psalmist reminded us this morning, that whom have we in heaven but you, and beside you we desire nothing on earth. And though we do sin, as he went on to say, our heart and our flesh do fail at times, but you are the strength of our heart, and you are our Savior. This is why we sing songs of praise, because you have put them in our hearts as expressions of our adoration and our gratitude. To you for your saving mercies to us in the Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your cross is our salvation. Your resurrection is our hope. And so we gather to hear you speak, to encourage one another in the truth. As we together await that day as it's by your own design reflected in the table that we'll share this morning. As we anticipate your return. With longing hearts. Bless us by your spirit. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles up, if you will, to First Peter. First Peter chapter two. We've been out of First Peter, of course, for the last couple of weeks. Thank you, Joe, for Psalm three. Uh, sorry I wasn't here to hear it in person, but thank you. And then thank you for Mike White. He's not here, but uh, what a blessing it was to have the son of the Whites here uh, last week. And so thank you. But I'm also eager to get back now to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll find ourselves this morning in verses 21 through 25. 21 through 25. And we'll try to finish it in time for the Lord's table uh, this morning. I want to introduce it. I was wrestling with how to introduce it. Several thoughts uh, went through my mind. But one was uh, just remembrance of this book. Uh, Some of you all may have read this a long time time ago. It's a book called In His Steps. Who's read that? Anybody read that? Uh, you're not missing anything. Uh, it was written by, his last name was Sheldon. Sheldon. Sheldon was a pastor. It was written in the late 1800s, a series of sermons that he did. It was later put into a book, I think around 1900. Uh, and in this book, essentially, uh, Sheldon gives this example of this mysterious figure who comes into this small town. This figure is supposed to be Jesus, unknown, unnoticed by the rest of the people in the community. And essentially, the book develops about how he transformed this community through his loving acts. And the idea is uh, a very moralistic sense of the gospel. In other words, it's uh, more about uh, he was kind to them, he was patient, which, of course, is a fruit of the gospel. And eventually these swearing and dishonest and incorrigible people get along and they're a happy community and so forth. That book actually was the inspiration to what we're probably more familiar with, the WWJD. What does that stand for? What would Jesus do, right? It's the bracelet. That, that simple little theme turned into actually a multi-million dollar marketing uh, advantage to someone it would bracelets and books and all kind of paraphernalia, Christian paraphernalia, that brought in quite a bit of uh, income for some. 
And the idea was simply very similar to Sheldon's. What would Jesus do in the various circumstances of life and relationships that we find ourselves? We, we are to ask, what would Jesus do? And, and that in and of itself is, uh, is a good question. Uh, that in and of itself is uh, something we should be asking ourselves. And we should be pouring over scripture to learn exactly what would Jesus do by meditating on his life and understanding him and understanding what true righteousness looks like. However, as we know that as a movement and as a popular movement, what would Jesus do really was little more, again, than a moralistic kind of view for for many people, not everyone, a moralistic view of the gospel. In other words, that the whole idea of the gospel is this, is merely that I live as a nicer, more congenial, more patient kind of person. And again, this is the fruit of the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. And that is sometimes where the confusion comes in. If you ask many people what the gospel is, they'll give you a description of what the gospel produces. The gospel is to feed the hungry. It is to care for the poor. The gospel is to show mercy and compassion to the outcast. The gospel is to pursue social justice. But that is not the gospel. That's what the gospel produces in the life of God's people. The gospel is Christ crucified. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. It wasn't, of course, just those words. It was the reality and all that it implied, which the rest of the epistle of 1 Corinthians and all of the New Testament bears witness to. So the gospel is the cross of Christ. It is what was anticipated by Isaiah the prophet. It was the Son of God incarnate in flesh, giving himself up after living a perfect life as a man to die on the cross as a substitute and as atonement for our sin that he might rise from the grave, that he might send his spirit, that he might draw in all for whom he died, that we might live for his glory and live with him forever in eternity and in heaven. And so at the heart of the cross and at the center of the cross and even the righteousness of what it means to believe in Christ and to follow Christ is laid out for us here in the epistle of 1 Peter as patient endurance of suffering. Patient endurance of suffering. And so if I were to ask you, who is the greatest example of the patient endurance of suffering? Well, we can think of lots of examples. Sometimes our mind goes to the martyrs who went before us and throughout church history, and some even today. We might think of the Apostle Paul, who was, of course, an example of suffering for the cross of Christ. But the greatest example is provided for us by Jesus himself who not only accomplished for us salvation, who not only provided for us an atonement, but he also, in his provision for our, to remove the guilt of our sin, in his provision of providing an atonement, he also gave to us an example of what it means to trust God in suffering, to trust God in persecution, to trust God when there is a price to pay for doing what is right and not for doing what is wrong. And so Jesus Christ provides our model, our motivation, and a mandate for righteous suffering. That's the idea here. So read with me, if you will, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1, 21 through 25. And then we'll look at these more closely as we prepare our hearts for the table. Beginning in verse 1. Actually, I'm gonna, let's go back up to verse 20, and we'll read the verse 25. It says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right 
and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Swing back around to verse 21 and notice here at first that Christ is our model for suffering. First point is Christ provides the pattern of suffering for Christians. He provides the pattern of suffering for Christians. He says, for you have been called for this purpose or to this you have been called. The ESV says, for to this you have been called. The NASB says, you have been called for this purpose. Both are correct. Literally, it is, for to this you have been called. But the the grammar there, the structure of it implies purpose. It's a very clear grammatical structure. And so both are true. For to this, this suffering you have been called to. For this purpose, you have been called as a Christian. And that's pretty striking language He's not merely saying that this is a consequence of you being called. It's not merely that, although it is that. He is saying your vocation, your calling as a Christian is for the intent that you would bear in this world suffering for the gospel. And as a matter of fact, the you here is a direct reference to these slaves And so these slaves, which we've looked at before, who are, in this case, the readers, the first readers of the epistle, those who are a part of the persecution that he's addressing because of the gospel, those who are suffering under the oppression not only of slavery, but suffering slavery as a Christian, which bears with it the added insult of all kinds of difficult situations, but also the hostility of Masters who do not love the same Christ and even for that reason more harshly treat them, as is noted in verse 20. He's saying, For this purpose, you have been called. You have been called. What is that purpose? It's to bear under unjust suffering with obedient submission to God. That's it. He says that in verse 18, be submissive. He started this section in verse 13, submit yourself. And as you know, that's going to be a theme for the rest of this section of the epistle. To submit willingly to the sovereign purposes of God as we live out our righteousness in this world. To bear under unjust suffering. And why? And this is at the heart of his point here. He says, you've been called for this purpose Since, or maybe even better, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. So why why have we been called for this purpose? Because it is, according to Peter here, 
a purpose that is consistent with our own salvation, a purpose that is consistent with the gospel, it is a purpose that is in line with the very life and the suffering of Jesus Christ, our Savior himself. Christ's own suffering in this world provides a template and the model, a paradigm, if you will, for our own existence in this world as those who belong to him. In fact, suffering as a believer, although that comes in many shapes and many forms, and although it comes with many degrees of intensity, is in fact an evidence of our salvation. He said that earlier over in chapter 1. He says, in verse 6, you've been great, uh, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the purpose of that is that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8. Don't turn there, verse 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if Indeed, we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. In other words, the idea of following Christ with a life that is absent of suffering is antithetical to the gospel call. It's not part of the gospel. When we follow Christ, we receive every grace, we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, new life, every hope and promise that is yes and amen in him. And we also, we also commit ourselves to a life that is willing to bear the suffering of the name we bear, namely of Christ. Namely of Christ. And so Peter says, you've been called for this purpose, Christian. You've been called for this purpose because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. He suffered for you. He suffered for you. You could say there he suffered on your behalf. It would probably be, again, a, a good way to translate that. He suffered on your behalf. He suffered for you. And this is a reference to Christ's vicarious suffering, in other words, his suffering in our place, his suffering in our stead, his suffering as a substitute on our behalf for our atonement. This is an idea that's clearly at the forefront of Peter's mind. He just said that in verse 19 of chapter 1. With precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, we have been redeemed, in verse 18, from our perishable things, from our futile way of life. We have been redeemed from our sin. We've been redeemed from the vanity of existence apart from Christ. This is clearly on his mind. He he opens the epistle as as, uh, acknowledging that he's addressing those who have been sprinkled with his blood. Using sacrificial imagery there. Having been washed clean with his blood. So clearly the idea of a vicarious sacrifice of Christ is... Uh, paramount on his mind. He's going to address that again later in verse 24. But, but here, he, that's actually not what he's emphasizing. What he's emphasizing here is that in that vicarious sacrifice, in that suffering on our behalf, Christ did something more than to provide for us an atonement, not less, but more. He provided for us an example for us to follow after him, an example to follow in his steps. 
This actually isn't unlike what the writer of Hebrews says. He said, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your suffering. In other words, keep your eyes focused on Christ. And he uses really clear and striking language here. He says, leaving you an example, an example. And this, this term is, is really a, a clear way to make his point here. It's, it's a term found mostly in biblical or literature related to scripture. Uh, it, it, it has the idea of putting out a mark by which we trace out a pattern. Uh, actually, one of the rare uses of it outside of biblical literature It was used to speak of letters formed by a teacher, like a stencil, if you will, that the students were to trace and to copy so that they might learn to write their letters correctly. It was a model. It was a guide for for them for writing. And so here he uses that imagery to say that Christ's life is that guide for us in terms of how we are to live in this world that opposes the truth of Christ. He provides in the perfect pattern for us to follow. And in us following his pattern, he gives a certain dignity to suffering. A certain dignity. He, he raises it to a new plane of importance. It's not, it's not merely suffering because of identity as a Christian. It is, in fact, to embrace and participate in the life of our Savior. One person even said this, English words such as example, modern, or model, or pattern are too weak. For Jesus, suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if one of many. He is the paradigm by which Christians write large letters of his gospel in their lives. If Christians are to live as servants of God, the essence of that identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly as Jesus did, exemplifying and suffering the same attitude and behavior that he did. Again, it's consistent with what it means to be in Christ and to be in union with Christ is to be willing to bear, as Christ did for us, the same suffering for righteousness. Our willingness to bear the shame, to bear the ridicule that he himself endured. He says, in order that you might follow in his steps or follow in his footsteps. It reminds us of the title of that book, but that title or that book itself left out this part of the story. Namely, that following in his footsteps does not merely make you a better person, it can make you a target. It can make you a target for the persecution and the ridicule of the world, even as it did for Jesus And so inherent to the gospel call and the work of the Spirit in the believing sinner is to follow Christ. And to follow Christ is to follow the way of the cross. You remember this. I'm going to just remind you of it. In Matthew Matthew 16, this was no less strange to the ears of the apostle as it is for many today. You remember when Jesus said that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be rejected and so on. Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is the gospel call. That is the gospel call. To walk the way of the cross. To walk the way of the cross. To walk the way of suffering. This doesn't mean that we, of course, look for suffering as some of the ancient martyrs did. That was sort of the mark at that time of super spirituality was to be a martyr. And so some actually put themselves out there so that they would be martyred. So that they could have the, the honor of being a super saint as you, as, a, as you would. Later, when martyrdom was no longer as much of an issue, this sort of super spirituality was taken over by monks and it became like separating from society and going out into the desert. He's not talking about the kind of suffering that we look for, not the kind of suffering that we bring upon ourselves by our mere foolishness or by our brashness, but he is talking about how we are to endure suffering when Simply as living faithfully in this world, opposition comes our way. When simply by naming the name of Christ, opposition comes our way. And we are to see it then as sharing in the very life of Christ. Sharing in the very suffering that Christ himself endured. As a matter of fact, he says these amazing words in verse 13 of chapter 4. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Keep on rejoicing. Why? Why would you rejoice in suffering? Well, his point is you rejoice in suffering because you're sharing in Christ's life. And sharing in Christ's life, you share also in his inheritance. You share also in his salvation. You share also in the hope that is in him, which is namely not only forgiveness, but a part in the world to come and in the age to come. And it shouldn't surprise us either. He says in verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes among you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening. The world is hostile, of course, to the truth. And there are storms brewing. You may be well aware of it. But there are storms brewing. Just recently, they passed unanimously what was mentioned before of in California, which always seems to be the beacon and the forerunner of these things in many ways, a bill that makes illegal anything that would present itself as conversion therapy for homosexuals, the LGBTQ, and so on, community. And so for any Christian ministry or any others that would somehow claim to provide services that would bring about a change in that person's life or even identifying it as wrong is no longer thought merely foolish or misguided, but is now a punishable crime by law. So, so it's only a matter of coming. We should not expect that the, the bubble that we've lived in for so long is going to continue forever. It's coming. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, and because of this, the world hates you. The world hates you. We can praise God that that hatred in our own context is not ramped up to the degree that it will be at some point in the future. Who knows when? 
But we should not expect the world to love us, not if we're faithful to the gospel. Not if we're faithful to the gospel. Because that was the example that Christ himself set for us. That to be righteous is to be at opposition with a world that hates righteousness. So, he gives us an example. Now, there's three parts of this example I want to mention just briefly. Just briefly. How, how can Christ be our example? How can he be our example? You might ask yourself, and this is the first one, leading into the first one, how can Christ be our example? How can we follow in his steps if he's God? Right? Christ is God. How in the world can we be an example or follow the example of God? Right? He's perfect. He's without sin. How can we follow his example? And the answer is simply this, because Christ obeyed, suffered, submitted to the Father in his perfect, spirit-empowered humanity. Christ obeyed as a man. He did not obey as God. Now, that's hard for us to kind of grasp sometimes because we so emphasize the deity of Christ, which we should, I'll mention in a minute. But Christ is our substitute as the man, Christ Jesus. As Paul calls him in 1 Timothy 2.5. The man, Christ Jesus, is our mediator and he is our example. Yes, he was God. Yes, he was fully God. Yes, he is the eternal son who existed in the form of God. Philippians 2.6 He's the eternal word who is called God from whom all things came into being and apart from whom nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator. He's equal to Yahweh in the Old Testament. The God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush is the angel of the Lord, who is I am, who would deliver his people. He's equal to the Father in divine glory. He is to be worshipped with the Father as God. And yet, the divine Son assumed the full reality and experience of humanity, though without sin. Some say if he was fully man, then he had to know sin, and that is theological ignorance. Humanity was not created in sin. Sin is an intrusion. Sin is a distortion of true humanity. Christ is the only real example and model of what it means to be fully human. And that is without sin. And the life he lived as our substitute and our mediator was lived fully as a man dependent upon and in the power of the Holy Spirit. John 3.34, he had the Spirit without measure. His humanity was created in the womb of Mary by the Spirit. He was born as a child and kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men by the Spirit's work in his life. When he began his public ministry, it was marked by a unique presence of the Holy Spirit. It was in the Spirit that he preached, resisted temptation, performed miracles, and was sustained in his offering as a sacrifice for our sin. He did that as a man... In the Holy Spirit. It wasn't some sort of divine ease there. He just kind of sat back and cruised on through life in the noble dignity of his deity. No. He was our sacrifice. He was our substitute as a man. At every part, the Spirit was upholding him and enabling him to do all that he did as our substitute. 
This is why when they blasphemed his miracles as being from the devil, the apostate religious leaders, he says, you're not blaspheming me. That can be forgiven. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why? Because everything you see in my life is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's why. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, Peter said, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He offered himself up by the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9, 14. So in every point of his life, he lived as a perfect man in the power of the Holy Spirit. How can he be our example? Because by the blessing of the new covenant, when Christ ascended to the Father, he sent the Spirit, and by that Spirit, true believers in Christ are in union with him. We share his life. We share this intense and rich fellowship with him and the Father through him. And for that reason, Christ can be our example in all things. He can be our example, and he is. And here he is our example in suffering. He is our example in suffering. In every way, he was enabled and empowered and sustained by the Spirit. And we share that same Spirit. And it also reminds us, as I've mentioned to you before, but it's really important that we grasp, when Christ suffered and his suffering is laid out before us on the pages of the gospel, on the pages of scripture, uh, he wasn't aloof from this. He didn't kind of float around the world as some, you know, with halo around his head and his feet a little bit off the ground, and he's floating around like some kind of ghost. That's not how it was. When he experienced suffering, he experienced it in its fullness. In reality, his experience of the suffering as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief was more intense than even our own suffering. Because it was an intensity and a suffering that was endured by one who had without sin, who was fully aware of it and innocent of it to a degree that we can't even imagine. And in that sense, he, he felt it even more, more fully. And again, in every, every part of his life. So when we say that he is our example, we can't silently whisper in our mind somewhere, whether we would articulate it or not, and go, yeah, but he didn't really suffer. He didn't really feel fear. He didn't really feel pain in the same way. He was God, you know. And Scripture doesn't let us get away with that. His his suffering was intense and it was real. His suffering went far beyond just the experience of the event of the cross, though that is the focus here. It includes rejection by those who were closest to him. It includes betrayal by one of his closest confidants. It includes fear of what he was going to endure. It includes being misunderstood by the people he came to love and to serve, even as they misinterpreted his own word and missed him as their Messiah. It involved ridicule, mockery, betrayal, humiliation, hypocrisy, and physical suffering. It, 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 it included the gamut of experience of suffering. There is no fundamental category of suffering that he himself did not experience. Not every kind of 
of suffering in specific details, but every category of suffering. Ephesians 4.15, or excuse me, Hebrews, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we, we look at his life as an example to follow, we realize that we are following one who is the perfect demonstration, the perfect pattern to follow, who endured suffering in its most intense form as a man in the power of the Spirit and for us. So first, he can be our example because he was a man who lived as a man for our substitute and as an example. Secondly, he suffered without sin. How did he suffer? 22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He suffered without sin. Of course, this is consistent with his divine nature and perfect humanity. He was completely without sin. This is Scripture's constant testimony. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He knew no sin. He was perfect. That means that in every way, in thought, in deed, in attitude, in motive, in every way, he was without sin. And therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for, for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself." as a perfect and holy and pure sacrifice. So he did not sin. He did not sin. He maintained his purity. He maintained his innocence. He maintained his integrity. He did not resort to self-deception for protection. In every way, he endured suffering without sin. And one noted this, that this, this is probably an aspect that most powerfully spoke to the slaves who are some of his immediate hearers. Because, and I quote, glib, deceitful speech was one of their notorious characteristics, adroit evasions and excuses being their often their sole means of self-protection. And yet he offered no self-protection. He offered no deceit in his mouth. And here he demonstrates his perfection as our substitute. Who is the perfect man, James reminds us, the one who can control his tongue. And he did. And he patiently endured it. And thirdly, he did it by showing no vengeance, an absence of vengeance. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And this is really hard for us to grasp. It's really hard for us to come to terms with. When treated unjustly, as we've mentioned before and we already know, one of the most natural tendencies is to seek retaliation, is to seek vengeance. I was reminded, actually this morning, made aware of, there's a Chinese human activist and a Christian, and I forgive me for the pronunciation, but Huang Yang. And she has suffered ongoing and intense persecution from the Chinese government. She champions uh, humanitarian causes and others 
and uh, the gospel. Although she suffered much, she displays the spiritual weakness that can come in the face of suffering, illustrating our natural fallen tendencies. The article about her said this, When I sat down with 49-year-old Huang at the Red Brick Chinyang Presbyterian Church in Taipei in September, it seemed a decade's worth of trauma had taken its toll on her. She at times cried and at times railed angrily against the Communist Party for its cruelty. After acknowledging some of the suffering that she went during one of her imprisonments, the writer goes on to say, In her prison cell, Huang screamed at the police, calling them scoundrels and wolves for detaining an innocent woman. Guards refused to let her shower, and they beat her, and they shackled her. And we can understand that. You can remember the Apostle Paul himself when standing before the leaders in Acts, and he was struck unjustly. God will strike you, you whitewashed tomb, he said. Later he apologized, realizing it was the high priest. But we can understand that sentiment, that, that, that tendency to want to retaliate with anger and with hostility. And say to those who persecute us, you scoundrels, you whitewashed tombs. But Jesus modeled just the opposite. Just the opposite of that. He did not take matters into his own hands. He did not seek to bring retribution and vengeance against his persecutors. And he did not threaten and he did not revile. Even though he could have. In fact, this is probably more than anywhere in Scripture a description of the meekness of Christ. Remember, meekness is not weakness. Meekness, as you well know, is power under control. It is a confident strength that refuses to act out. For harm and in disobedience. He didn't threaten or revile. He knew who he was. He was not weak. He knew he was the one who created the world. He would judge it in the future, sustain it by the word, he sustains it by the word of his power, and yet he willingly endured without vengeance. And this speaks not only of his deeds, but his hard attitude towards his persecutors. It's not that he simply held his tongue while inwardly hating and despising them. It's not to say that he didn't revile, like sometimes we might go, well, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to hold my tongue. But inside you're fuming with hatred and bitterness and anger. That wasn't the case with him. It wasn't the case at all. He endured their hatred while dying for the sin of any of them who would believe. As a matter of fact, when he was on the cross, you well remember his words were, not God strike them dead for this injustice. God bring a sword of wrath that will cause their blood to spill knee high throughout the land of Jerusalem. There would be a time for that. But what did he say? He was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. He displayed a heart of tender mercy. To the thief, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He did not revile. And it was not merely a restraining of his words from the, of the vengeance that was in his heart. It was, in fact, what words that came out were, in fact, an expression of the mercy and the tenderness and the goodness and the humility of his heart that endured such hostility by sinners. So it was his heart attitude. And so he becomes then for us the perfect model of enduring the scorn of sinners, bearing with unrighteous suffering, with perfect obedience and submission to the will of the Father. To the will of the Father. 
Now, we're not going to get as far as I, I wanted, but I'll just introduce this next point. The motivation. How was he able to do this? How was he able to do this? How was he able to endure such suffering this way? I mean, you've experienced some kind of ridicule, haven't you, for being a Christian? Have you suffered anything for naming the name of Christ? Who knows what it might be? Some of us have maybe experienced, and some of you, I should say, more intensely than others. And how have we handled it? How were you able to handle it? What goes on in the heart? What goes on on the inside? What goes on in our hidden spiritual life that allows us to endure without responding with hostility, not only in our words, but even with our hearts? And so let's look at the motivation of Christ. Christ's example demonstrates the inner motive of submission. Look at what he says in verse 23. Uh, The second part. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He placed his life and his circumstances completely in the care of the Father. Completely in the care of the Father. He entrusted everything to him. Isn't this exactly what he calls us to do? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, lose our life that we might find it, lose our life that we might gain it. The struggle that we feel when we're disrespected, the struggle that we feel inside when we bear unjustly persecution from the world or any kind of suffering in any of its forms, what makes that so hard for us? What was different about Christ than us in our struggle? It was this. When we struggle, it's because we're still retaining to a certain amount of our own dignity, our own will, our own independence from Christ. Most often that's the case. Because we still have a sense of that's not fair. And there's a part of us that has not, as Christ did in this situation, in his whole life and in the cross where we have completely submitted and yielded our lives to the plan of the Father. How in the world else could we rejoice at sharing in the sufferings of Christ? And as much as that we will stand for our own dignity, rather than being fully submitted to bear only the dignity of Christ in us, then we will struggle. Then we'll have a hard time. It's going to pull at everything in our flesh that wants to retaliate and take our own vengeance to defend our own honor and to defend our own justice. But that's not what Christ did. That wasn't his motive, was not to defend his own honor. He was honored on the cross. He'll be honored in the future. He knew that. It's not that he doesn't care about that. It is this, that he knew that the in Indignity that he suffered then, the shame that he suffered, which Hebrews tells us he despised, he endured without retaliation because he bore no independent exercise of his will outside of the will of the Father. It's the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. I only do the things that are pleasing to the Father. How can I bear this? Because the Father has brought it. He's ordained it. It's part of his sovereign plan to accomplish redemption. He entrusted himself completely 
to the Father. Completely to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done was the hallmark of his life. And the grammar here indicates or makes clear this wasn't just a moment of, it wasn't like he just was, you know, living life and then all of a sudden he had to trust him in the midst of a persecution. It was the continual pattern. It was the habit. It was the ongoing characteristic of his life. Every part of his life was to do the will of the Father so that the Father would be glorified in him. And, of course, in his case, in doing that, he was glorifying himself as well. So how is he our example? So Christ is our example of suffering. We will suffer because as we live in this world, we share in Christ's life. If we share in Christ's life, we will bring on ourselves the same hatred of the world that is designed for him. He is our example because he lived as our substitute, as a man fully human, fully in the power of the Holy Spirit, fully accomplishing all that the Father had given him to do. He is our model, our example, our perfect model. And he did so in in providing this example as he was also bearing our sin, which he'll emphasize, which we'll look at next week. He was able to do it without sin. He was able to do it without a word of vengeance, without an attitude of vengeance, without any threat. Because he had completely yielded his life to the Father, he was not seeking his own will. He was not defending his own honor. He was not going his own way. He was not being self-protecting. But he fully laid his life down in trust of the Father's plan to be our sin-bearing sacrifice. And I'll end with this as we come into the table. This is what we're to do. Verse 19 of chapter 4. Therefore... Those who suffer according to the will of God, your suffering is not outside of God's purpose for your life. And that's really important for us to understand. The trials that you endure are not outside of God's purpose for your life. God ordains that that is the case. We reminded of the Thessalonians I mentioned a few weeks ago. He says, for you it has been granted to suffer for his sake. That's really hard for us to... To wrap our mind around, but it's true. And so he says in verse 19 of chapter 4, Therefore those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So he's our model. He trusted the Father. He entrusted himself to the Father. And so he was able to endure it with humility and submissiveness and patience. While he felt fear, he was afraid of the cross. That's why he wept blood. While he felt the hurt of betrayal. While he felt all that goes along with looking at his impending sin-bearing death. While he felt the shame. He entrusted himself to the Father and to him who judges righteously. And by his going before us, he enables us to do the same. And we'll look at that a little more closely next week. So as we come to this table, the elements remind us that he is the one who shed his blood on our behalf. He is the one with a body who was given totally to do the will of the Father and was broken on our behalf. 
And because of that obedience, we can come together and participate and share together in the joy of knowing his salvation, as we will on the table this morning. So let me pray as uh, men come forward. And when I finish praying, then uh, Kathleen will pray and the elements will be passed out. And just spend that time to meditate and to rejoice and thank God for his mercy to us and to deal with anything in your heart that uh, you need to deal with to come in a worthy manner. Father, thank you for this, your great mercy to us, not only in providing for us a Savior, but in providing for us the pattern to follow, for raising our suffering to the dignity of the suffering of our Lord, giving it this eternal purpose, and help us to think of it in this way. And Lord, we certainly don't ask for suffering. In fact, we would want to be spared from it. We certainly don't rush into those things that would bring suffering because of our foolishness. We ask rather to be wise as we live out the gospel in this world. But if by your sovereign purposes and in your sovereign purposes you bring it, may we always look to our model, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our model not only in suffering but in life. And now prepare our hearts as we take the table to worship you in spirit and in truth, rejoicing in all that you have provided for us. In your name, Jesus, amen.
We invite all who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to partake of the table. In fact, as we take of these elements, we are signifying faith in Christ and that we are visibly identifying as the body of Christ, that those who are enjoined to him by faith and by the Spirit, who share in his life, who trust him, who are anticipating his return, who are living in light of that return, who are by the Spirit one body, though many, we are yet unified under our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we invite all who profess a true faith in Christ to partake of these elements. But consistent also with the warnings of the Apostle, we remind you as well that this is for believers. This is for believers. It doesn't communicate any special grace. It doesn't save you. It doesn't turn into the body and the blood of Christ. There's no objective presence of Christ in the elements themselves. It merely is an expression of faith of those who belong to him. It's a symbol of our unity. It is a time of particular meditation and remembrance on his redemption for us, on his present life in us, and on his return. We also would be reminded that we do not come to the table in an unworthy manner to use the language of the Apostle Paul. That is, not that we come sinless, for we all sin, even believers, even the most mature believer sins regularly and feels that sin more intensely. We don't come without sin. We come with our sin and we come broken. We come trusting in the grace of God provided for us in Christ at the cross. But we don't come holding on knowingly to sin. And that's where he says we judge the body rightly. He says if we judge rightly, we will not be judged. And when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So we come with hearts that say, Lord, as we remember your death and we remember your resurrection and your life in us and your coming kingdom, we come acknowledging our sin but trusting in your grace We come humbly committing to you our lives and wherever there is disobedience, wherever there is sin, whether it be externally or in the motives of our hearts, that we come willing to seek obedience and righteousness in that area, depending on him. If there is known sin in your life that you're unwilling to deal with and confess, then you would do better to let the elements pass and not bring the discipline of the Lord. But for us who have trusted in Christ and are coming knowing that his grace alone reconciles us to the Father and who are willingly pursuing sanctification, then we come in joy and we read these words with great hope. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. And remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Let's drink together.
Paul? Where's Paul? Maybe he will come up and lead us in a closing hymn and a closing prayer.